I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's a real pleasure to have Dr. Ben Steele, who's a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has written recently a book called The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. I love the book. I'm now officially a Ben Steele groupie. And I loved his previous book, The Battle of Bretton Woods. And I think you should read The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, in conjunction with his prior book, The Battle of Bretton Woods, John Maynard Keynes, Harry Dexter White, and the Making of a New World Order. Dr. Steele is very well prepared to write about these issues. You're an economist by training, right? I am. So where did you grow up, Dr. Steele? I grew up on Long Island. I did my undergraduate degree in economics and at Wharton. Okay. Um, but then I went uh, overseas to Oxford to do my PhD, and I was pretty much a mainstream financial economist, at least in the early years of my career. And so then, Dr. Steele, you, how did you decide to write the first, this book on the Bretton Woods? And then how did you, what prompted you to write this book? Because I, I see them as related. Maybe you, I suspect you do too. I, I do. The, the idea for the Bretton Woods book came to me in the midst of the financial crisis when you had world leaders from French President Nicolas Sarkozy to British Prime Minister Gordon Brown all calling for, quote-unquote, a new Bretton Woods. So I thought it might be a good idea to take a look at the old original Bretton Woods to see if there was something interesting there. And uh, I was quite amazed to see how little had been written about Bretton Woods. There had been plenty written about the the institutions that were created, the monetary system, etc., but very little about the, the episode. And the historical episode turned out to me far more fascinating than, than even I had um, realized when I set out to write the book. Now, the Marshall Plan actually plays a small cameo role late in my Bretton Woods book. And I suppose uh, um, uh, while I was writing that, I had this mini epiphany that in, in many senses, the Marshall Plan rep- represented a repudiation of the view of what the post-war world should be or could be that I had been just ri- been writing about over the previous 300 pages. So I decided, hey, I want to take a look at the Marshall Plan from a fresh angle. So what is the Marshall Plan? To understand where the Marshall Plan uh, came from, um, I, I think you have to uh, go back to the immediate post-war years and, and what exactly happened. In May of 1945, when the fighting in Europe stopped, Truman was actually determined to fulfill FDR's pledge that he'd made in Tehran in 1943 to withdraw American troops from Europe within two years of the end of the fighting. And there were over three million American troops in Europe at the time, so this was a major undertaking. And he did, indeed proceed to withdraw these troops very quickly. Uh, But this created an enormous problem for the U.S. military because Stalin demonstrated almost immediately that he was not going to be satisfied with his newly expanded borders. Um, In 1946, he began pressing territorial claims in Turkey and Iran. He refused to withdraw Soviet troops that had Uh, been based in Iran under wartime uh, treaty, and he only backed down after Truman sent a large military flotilla to the region. The watershed moment, however, came in February of 1947 when the British, who are now bankrupt, 
and seeing their empire literally imploding over the course of three weeks in February, told the State Department that they were withdrawing all their thousands of troops from Greece where they were protecting the government against communist insurgents. That really set off alarm bells in the State Department. By that time, however, Stalin had already shifted his sights away from the Mediterranean to Germany, which really became the focal point of the Cold War. And as I describe at length in the book, there was simply no basis for compromise between the Soviet Union and the United States over the future of occupied Germany because neither country could afford to have a unified Germany as an ally of the other. And so now the military is faced with this situation where Stalin's showing signs of aggressiveness, acquisitiveness, but Truman is still committed to withdrawing American troops. So how do we protect our vital economic and security interests in Europe? And the answer was to use a form of asymmetric warfare. The United States at the end of the Second World War dominated the globe economically and militarily like never before and never since. We accounted for about half of world manufacturing output. We had sole possession of atomic weapons. So the idea, which came from the military, not from economists, interestingly enough, was to lever our economic dominance to support our economic and security interest in Western Europe, the part of Europe where the Soviets were, were not occupying. So what was the exact proposal? So what was the exact idea to, to lever these economic interests? If you go back to Marshall's speech um, at Harvard, at Harvard in June, June of 1947, this iconic speech, it's, it's very short, a little over 1,400 words, and there are very few details laid out in there. And that's quite deliberate for two reasons. First of all, he wants the Europeans to take ownership of this thing. It can't be something that's imposed on Western Europe by the United States because fundamental to the American vision is integrating Western Europe economically and politically. That was really the only condition that the Americans set out. Um, it was a, a component of Marshall's speech. So he, he knew that this was going to be difficult for the Europeans to accommodate. So it was critical that the proposal itself, the details of how Europe would reconstruct itself with American aid came from Europe itself. And second, he didn't want to exclude any country in Europe, including the Soviet Union. Now, this wasn't naive. Marshall knew perfectly well that if the Soviets decided somehow to participate in the Marshall Plan, that Congress would never legislate it. So the key was to provoke the Soviets to reject the Marshall Plan and thereby take blame for splitting Europe into two. Because they knew it was coming. Or it was, uh, it they was de did, facto. They, the, they knew that something was percolating. They had excellent intelligence in the, in the United States. The, the Soviets did. The Soviets Sadly, did. they did. And one of the things, I just to interrupt you, is in both books, I think one of the most interesting insights you provide and you provide it in a very decaffeinated way, and because I know this is sort of a caffeinated topic, is the perfidy and treachery and traitorous actions of people like Harry Dexter White, outrageous, traitorous, treasonous actions, treason after treason after treason, outrageous things that you document in both books. 
and it's a reason why the IMF is not run by the United States. We were going to get both of them. We were going to get the World Bank and the IMF. So people think, oh, this was some kind of, they sat around in New Hampshire and said, well, you, you get, you're the Europeans, you get the IMF. No, it was because Harry Dexter White was going to get it. But because he was a Soviet spy, they said, we'll make you the equivalent of the U.S. ambassador to the IMF because they didn't want him to know that they were on to him. The big difference between the two stories in terms of the spy element is that the key spies in the Bretton Woods story were American, and the key spies in the Marshall Plan story were British. Terrible. In particular, Donald McLean and Guy Burgess. Famous, famous names. Yeah. But you do talk about in this book, The Marshall Plan, that Harry Dexter White, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, a huge job in international policy in the United States, a very big and important job, a job of great trust. He provided the uh, printing press molds for the West German currency to the Soviets so they could run the presses to try and crash the West German economy. Is that correct? This is true, and he told rather egregious lies in order to accomplish this. For example, he misrepresented a memorandum from Marshall. Uh, George Marshall had heard of this idea of giving the Soviets the printing press, the currency plates. Yeah, plates. And George Marshall being George Marshall didn't interfere where it wasn't his remit, but he did ask that if we go forward with such a plan, we not do it before a certain date in order not to interfere with military operations. Uh, Harry Dexter White grossly misrepresented this communication, saying that the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff had ordered that the plates be turned over to the Soviets. The Soviets went on to mint about eight times as many occupation marks as the United States did. Those marks were eventually cashed in in Washington at the exchange rate established by none other than Harry Dexter White, which ultimately cost the U.S. Treasury and taxpayer uh, up to about $6.75 billion in current dollars. It's outrageous. It's so outrageous. All these sorts of this perfidy and this treason was only really fully documented after the fall of the Soviet Union. You, could, you went into the files, or you had some research person. Yeah who spoke Russian, I looked at your, your books, yes. and you had you sent folks to look at this. Yes. In some cases, the critical archival material was right here in the United States. The FBI, for example, under the Freedom of Information Act, sent me 13,000 pages on Harry Dexter White. Um, and in those 13,000 pages, I found 18 Soviet intelligence cables that were intercepted by the United States during the war, many of which had not been decoded until many years, in some cases decades later. But these 18 cables reference White by his various code names and his uh, activities on their behalf. In your previous book, you talked about that he had a special Central Asian rug in his home. Yes. That if you were on the team, if you were a fellow traveler, you knew this person. So the KGB or whoever that, whatever the the military intelligence people were yeah. in the Soviet Union gave their spies, or their, the folks they were working with, these special rugs as like a signaling device, right? This was, in, in fact, a, a second choice gift for Harry Dexter White. His Russian handler had initially suggested to Whitaker Chambers, who was the intermediary between the two, that he give him a nice wad of cash. And Chambers was mortified. He said, look, these, these people are passionate ideologues. They're supporting communism. You. Yeah, they would not do this for, uh, money. for money. So his Soviet contact was rather baffled by this 
but decide, okay, if they won't take money, we'll give them, give, them a, give them a nice rug. The daughters of Harry Dexter White... One is still alive. ...still defend him and saying he's innocent. Absolutely. There's a spe- just one last thing on the Harry Dexter White, because this is a completely unknown historic fact. And Harry Truman made some sort of a speech, either after Harry Dexter White died... Correct, yeah. ...made some sort of a statement that said, we knew he was a spy, mm-hmm. and we knew he was a spy, and we had his number, and so he was up for the big job at the IMF... He was explaining this in America for the broader American public, and we gave him a less important job, meaning the IMF executive director job, which is like the IMF, the U.S. ambassador, of the IMF job, to kind of give him a prize, but not and so that he they didn't he didn't fully know that we were fully onto him, so that we could keep kind of monitoring him, which is I think basically what happened. But he Harry Truman came out and made a speech right. specifically about the treasonous actions of Harry Decker White while he was president, saying this man was a spy. It's half true what Truman said. The, the timeline... It's true that what I'm saying is true, mm-hmm. that that factually did happen, that he did come oh, out of abso- the speech, right? Uh, absolutely, but just to, to clarify, in January of 46, Truman, of his own free will, nominates White to be the first U.S. executive director of the fund and is planning to nominate him to be the managing director, the head of the fund. Right, so, so the U.S. director is like the U.S. ambassador, and the managing director is the real big job, the CEO job. Right, but when J. Edgar Hoover gets wind of this, he produces a long mem- memo for the president, arguing that um, he should not even think this of such a, a thing. because spy. And, I, and he yeah. says, I could prove it. And, and, you know, Hoover, for all his reputation for overzealousness, didn't know a quarter of it at the time. He didn't know anything about these intelligence cables, for example. Exactly. Now, Truman didn't believe Hoover at the time, but he knew he had a massive political problem because if he went forward with this, uh, Hoover was obviously going to leak it. Now, his secretary of state and his treasury secretary disliked White intensely and wanted him out of government, but uh, Truman, being a political operator, didn't want to raise questions. So he, he said, well, we can effectively quarantine him as U.S. Make him the executive. U.S. ambassador yeah. to the IMF. He can kind of he can have a big job, but he's not going to cause any trouble. That's right. But now we had a big political problem that Truman had to deal with. That if he nominated another American to sit above him, there would be all sorts of questions asked about why the architect of the IMF, Harry Dexter White, was being passed over. So the idea was to we'll give it to a Belgian. We'll give it to a Belgian. In other words, um, the treasury we'll say the Europeans are demanding it. Uh, yeah, we we tried to present it to. John Maynard Keynes, who was basically yes. Britain's financial amb- ambassador in, in March of 46, just before the IMF was inaugurated in Savannah. This was an act of graciousness. The United States had decided that it really wanted presidency of the World Bank, and it would be terribly rude of the United States to take the heads of both institutions so the IMF could be headed by a European. Well, if you ask me, we should have taken both of them. We would have. And so, you you know, I'm in the business, and so I'm here in Washington. And if you listen, you'd think it was like by some kind of divine design that we have an American running the World Bank and a European running the IMF. And so there's lots of discussions about who gets those jobs. Well, I think the reason no one ever wrote a book about the Bretton Woods process is because I think it was born in sin because of this Harry <laughs> Dexter White thing. Is that possible? Do you think that some people just said, I don't want to deal with it because of this Dexter White yeah, stuff? Yeah, I, I don't know. One thing that baffled me in the course of writing the, the book is that each piece of documentary evidence I brought to bear to tell the story about how White was going to be the head of the yeah. IMF and then didn't become in the end, that all those pieces of the puzzle had already been published. 
but no one had pieced them together, and I I cannot explain why. Even people at the IMF, Americans who were very familiar with it. You know why? It's because I've been. I was over there. I was at the World Bank. I had a. I had one of those, you know, multilateral passports called a laissez-passe. They're completely apolitical or unpolitical. They have zero. They have high. They're a ten out of ten on economic stuff and zero on politics or zero on certain kinds of skills. Not That's not a criticism. They're, they do very important things. I'm not against it. But I think anything having to do with this stuff was like just either made them uncomfortable or just sort of out of their comfort zone. They're mainly technocrats. And so anything having to do, the, the story you tell in your previous book is so interesting and so riveting because you tie it together and put it in a very interesting way. And I think most people have written these, like you said, I think most people have written these books are generally macroeconomists talking about what's an SDR, which is a, you know, which is basically like the basket of currencies and coming up with this stuff and, you know, how many shares do the Americans have and this kind of stuff. And so there's a whole sub-universe of people who are interested in that stuff. Very few historians or sort of political scientists or sort of folks who think about foreign policy have seen this and properly placed both this event, Bretton Woods, and the Marshall Plan in the proper context of geostrategy, American interests, national security. And that's why I think both of your books have been so successful. Thank you. I, I mean, there's plenty of economics in, oh, in, you're in an both economy, books. You, yeah. you have economic chops, but there's no question about it. But what I'm saying is, is I just think the, this was sort of, this is sort of an, uh, this was a untilled soil. And that's, so you absolutely have tons of economic stuff in both the books, yeah. but you properly place it in a larger context. Well, the economics didn't emerge in a vacuum. The uh, Keynesian economists in the administration did not get involved in the details of the Marshall Plan uh, and until the framework had actually already been constructed by the State Department. So, uh, so I'm sorry I, I spent 15 minutes on Harry Dexter White, but I, I've wanted to have this conversation <laughs> with you for a very long time because I was, I was shocking fascinating and shocking appalling all these emotions came up when i read the first book and then the various instances that come up in your second book about this perfidy were so outrageous and i knew were true that it just shook me to my core and i've had to have this conversation with you about that so i know we we went off on a tangent so i'm going to come back to the marshall plan but i think so you what you said is that george marshall gave this iconic speech 1400 word speech in 1947 and so one of the reasons it's vague is he wants the Europeans to come up with what the plan is. Yep. Now, does he ask them, okay, come to me country by country, or does he say no. come as a continent? You, that was his one criterion. You have to do this together. You have to come up with one unified plan. Show how you're going to use your combined resources most efficiently. Um, and af- after um, Marshall's speech, Uh, Over the course of several months, this goes from um, uh, July uh, well into September, um, the 16 recipient countries get together and they have your your typical sort of EU bash up um, where they try desperately, uh, despite having conflicting national interests, to come up with a combined plan. And the Americans are there behind the scenes, prodding them with sticks. Come on, guys, get on with it. And it's looking like it's going to be a disaster once we get into September. They have to uh, extend the the deadline. And at that point, uh, Will Clayton, 
um, in particular, is one of the heroes of my story from the State Department. Undersecretary. For Economic Affairs. Uh, really comes down on them super hard. And hurts the um, cats. George Kennan flies over to, to Paris, and they read the Europeans, the Riot Act. Okay, this is how it's going to be. This is the maximum request that we think Congress can stomach. You are going to have to get rid of this overlap in terms of the resources um, you're going to be using. You can't all have a national steel industry. This is a waste of our money. And eventually, the Europeans come out with a, a, a mishmash of a document. It's, it's 700 pages. It's utterly enormous. And you read it? I, I, I did. I did. It's not always um, pleasant reading. But this was, in some senses, uh, an essential first European Union document. That's what I was. That's uh, you what know, I'm all at. the contradictions were there, but but, and this is a huge but. At this point, they really were committed to this uh, American vision of working together on economic uh, integration. So, it was a huge step forward. I mean, so several things on that. Just just for a second, what is the OEEC? Is that what I think it's? Or yeah, the, in terms of the OECD. And isn't that, isn't that, in essence, was sort of the secretariat that kind of put all these folks together that, and that, now exists late now that, it's That's exists. correct. So this organization is created at the Paris conference in, in late July. And in, in terms of understanding its importance historically, it eventually branches out into two directions. To the left, you get the OECD that we know today, which is it's based... Like a, it's a club of rich democratic it's a, countries. It's a rich, rich man's like think tank. Colombia is on yeah. the five-yard line of becoming <laughs> a member of the OECD. It's like it's President Santos, I was in Colombia two weeks ago, his most fervent wish before he walks out the door is to become a member of the OECD. Right. It's, it's the club of rich. It, it's basically joining the Metropolitan Club there you are. of countries. Yes. Um, and to the right, um, you go down the path towards the European Union, first to the European Coal and Steel Community, then to the, the Treaty of Rome. These are both children of the Marshall Plan. Absolutely. Children of the Marshall Plan. And I should emphasize, a lot, people don't realize this, that the French had to be dragged into this kicking vision. And kicking screaming. and screaming all the way. Because of the Germany issue, right? Yeah, uh, 100% because of Germany. They were at least as ruthless as the Russians in um, ripping up factories from Germany and their occupation. There was a temptation to play the World War One tape Completely. over again. Yes. And um, the State Department had tremendous difficulties getting the French on board. In the end, the one innovation that critical innovation that had it had to be added to the Marshall Plan to get the French fully on board was the creation of NATO. Uh, one year plus a day after the Marshall legislation was signed. So this we're is absolutely fascinating yeah. in your book. You, you say that in essence the, in the Marshall Plan and NATO are two faces of the same coin. Yeah. Is that a way to describe it? Uh, absolutely. And this contradicted the initial American vision, which remember was to just We're getting it. out. Yeah, we're getting out. We're going home. Uh, we're going to give you all this money. It's going to be over four years Send to show you that. Yeah, but, but, yeah well, we're, we're going to be with you yeah, all yeah, the yeah. way. Just, but just, um, just pay me back and send me a postcard. There, there you go. And that didn't work. And the French had a good, good argument. The French said, you want me to rebuild and you want me to have Germany at the center of Europe? Then you got to guarantee my security. Yeah, look, they 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 said they were making perfectly They've perfectly three rational. Times in the last hundred years, they have destroyed my country three times. Completely. Right? They they said, look, you go home. 
you give us this money, and you expect our businessmen to start investing again. But look, in five years' time, uh, Germany could cut off our coal supplies. The Soviets could take over Western Germany and cut off our coal supplies. So th this isn't going to work. We can't participate in this vision. Your money's going to be wasted. Um, the British were completely behind this uh, argument as well. They were supportive of this French argument. Uh, completely. The British had uh, similar concerns. You know, obviously there was a little distance, yeah. physical distance between Britain and Germany. So they'd, uh, they'd been at least two wars with Germany in the last, in the prior 40 years. Yeah, I, I should emphasize NATO was fundamentally a European innovation. The most important early voice was Ernest Bevin, the British. Foreign minister. Foreign, foreign, yes. A former coal mine labor union leader. Absolutely. So this was not an American idea. We we had to be brought into this. We had this. to be brought into that. Yeah, and eventually the State Department came to refer to NATO as, quote-unquote, a military ERP, European Recovery Program, which was the formal name of the Marshall Plan. Okay, so I think let's just talk for a minute about why did they carry out the Marshall Plan. I mean, you, you spent several pages, at least almost a chapter, talking about how bad it was after World War II. Yeah. And that I think what you would say is... It was so economically dire and also related so politically that we were going to lose Western Europe to the communists. Correct. In elections. That, are those two true yes, statements? Yes. I mean, that's people why we forget did it. We didn't do it just for, for our health or we Heck just, no. you know, come out of our the goodness of our hearts. This we was geostrategy. This is, this is the first major component of George Kennan's new geostrategy of containing the Soviet Union. People forget today, but the communists were a very powerful political force in both Italy and France. They were in coalition governments, a big part of coalition governments, until May 1947, just before Marshall's speech. So the Americans are beginning to intimate to the uh, French and the Italians that if you want our help, you got to get those guys out, and you got to keep them out. And this was this was one of this the major of the, successes part, part of, of the, the Marshall Plan. And so, by, so I lived in Spain for a long time. Love Spain. Know a lot about Spanish history. The most famous film of the mid twentieth century in Spain is called Bienvenidos, Mr. Marshall. Welcome, Mr. Marshall, <laughs> which was built in like the mid fifties, fifty five, and it was about sort of there was a Spanish village that hears a rumor that Mr. Marshall himself is coming to provide aid to rebuild the village in Spain. And there's a car that drives through at the end. There's an American car that drives through at the end, and that's the whole, it's like a farce. Spain is not in the Marsh Plan. Why isn't Spain in the Marsh Plan? Yeah, this is a, a big source of debate within the U.S. Congress. A lot of Republicans supported bringing Spain in. Uh, and Franco this, was anti-communist. Yes, and Franco him, himself butted into the debate at the last minute just before the legislation was passed, praising all the uh, Republicans who supported— The U.S. Republicans, not the Spanish. The U.S. Republicans, yeah, US Republicans who supported bringing uh, Spain in. The, the other European states were strongly against it. This was a real offense— to left-of-center governments and places of course, like that. Uh, even in the United States, anybody, if you'd been a, you know, there was the Abraham Lincoln Brigade that fought against Franco, American volunteers, uh, much of sort of the literary and creative class in the United States had been against Franco, and many folks in the U.S. Democratic Party were against 
were, were staunchly against Look, this was there. a tough political decision to make because it, it was all about democracy, right? Yeah, and, and it's fair to say Franco was not a Democrat. He was not a Democrat. Democrat. But, you know, I do raise the question in the book, could we have gotten Spain more quickly on the road to democratic reform and entry yeah. into the European community? It came only in the 80s. That's it, correct, it became, 86, it became I believe. 86. Yeah. And it only had democracy. It got full democracy. Franco died in 75, and they had full-on free elections in 77. They almost lost it in 82, and the king of Spain at the time, Juan Carlos I, had to go on national television in full military regalia and say, I'm a commander-in-chief. You are to stand down. Save the, save the country. But we could have maybe done it 20 years. Your argument is that maybe 20 years earlier in the 50s this could have happened. You know, counterfactual history is it's fascinating. Easy to, it's easy to sit in a think tank and think about counterfactual <laughs> history. Okay, so we cannot end this conversation. I got several things I got to cover with you before we end this conversation. The first is you've got to tell me about Arthur Vandenberg, the the most important person that most listeners don't know nothing about, and is really ought to be in the pantheon of great American statesmen. He gets, gets Zippo credit. I have half a mind to do some sort of a just a one half day seminar on the greatness of Arthur Vandenberg as a result of reading your book. A remarkable figure. Um, George Marshall never referred to the Marshall Plan as the Marshall Plan, but he did say uh, that he believed strongly that Vandenberg should have had his name formally associated with it. You have to understand. Who is Arthur Vandenberg? Arthur Vandenberg is the Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That's a big job. It's a big job. And in 1947, the Republicans control both houses of Congress. They are very hostile to President Truman not just because he's a member of the other party, but he's an illegitimate president. He, he got it because FDR died, and he's sitting there, kind of, he's, he's got the job for three years Correct. just because he happened to be the, the fourth vice president so, of FDR. Yeah, they right. have utter disdain for him. Truman himself knew that. For example, Clark Clifford had his main political advisor proposed to him that we should call the Marshall Plan the Truman Plan, and Truman immediately laughed and said, um, anything that goes up to Congress bearing my name will twitch a few times, turn belly up, and die. He said, but even the worst Republican could not vote against a plan named after the general. But the general himself... After um, General Marshall, who had led the Allies to victories in World War II, and an icon at the time was an untouchable figure. Is that absolutely, fair? And, and we it, don't remember that today. But this was sort of there, there's no one in American politics. Colin Powell at one point kind of came, you know, was maybe in the zip code at, at one point in his career had this kind of aura around him. But George Marshall had sort of like not one halo, but had like four halos around him. This man was an untouchable icon at the it's, time. It's deserved. Um, and I mean, absolutely richly deserved. The main reason why there's never been what I would consider a, a truly gripping biography of the man is that... Um, George Marshall. George Marshall is there. There are no skeletons. He's a great man. What you see is what you get. And so we would never have gotten this plan without General Marshall who did command enormous respect from and he, Republicans. And he put his prestige on the line completely. and said, as the, vic the architect of victory, I am telling you, the American people, we must do this. Absolutely. But he needed a Republican. He needed a partner. He needed a partner. And Vandenberg was an unlikely 
partner, a former isolationist, staunch supporter of the Neutrality Acts in the 1930s, but he himself said he underwent an epiphany after Pearl Harbor. He said no rational person could be a, an isolationist um, after that event. Now, Vandenberg certainly had presidential ambitions, and he had to sacrifice. He gave them up. He gave them up. He was going to be Secretary of State. He gave it up. They said, I have to deliver the Marshall Plan through the Skeptical Congress. I have to deliver NATO through the Skeptical Congress. He was the only person that could do it. He he was the only person with credibility. He was sort of like a John McCain figure, something like that in the Republican Party on national security issues, somebody who was trusted within his party, only he could deliver it. Not just trusted, but he was a remarkable orator. I mean, you, you, you probably read in the, the book these several instances where he's conducting the hearings. How many hearings were conducted on this? Oh, my God. Dozens. Dozens and dozens. So, so and dozens. I'm in the business, yes. right? I yeah. pay my mortgage on this stuff. There's nothing, there's almost nothing today in the U.S. Congress that gets more than one hearing, maybe two. And we're talking dozens. How many members of Congress went to Europe to go look at, look Hundreds. at the damage? It's a Richard astounding. Nixon went. Richard Nixon went, and Richard Nixon came home. Uh, Shaken. Yes, absolutely. He went to Italy. Congressional delegations, you said that the congressional delegations were ordered not to bring evening clothes so that no one could say that they were out there doing junkets. Or wives. Or wives. So no shopping. And no in those junkets. days. Right, I, right, in those days, right, yeah. just we quickly clarify. <laughs> but think about the fact you had dozens of hearings, tomes and tomes of reports written about the dire situation in Europe, and then not five members of Congress. So a congressional delegation is like four members of Congress, maybe six. That's a big delegation in today's And let world. me tell you how, how much importance Vandenberg himself vested in these hearings. He said anybody in the public spotlight spouting off about what this plan should do or should not do, I'm going to subpoena him or her in, unless they're willing to... Tell to tell the uh, truth, to, uh, to say it under oath. Because Vandenberg understood that this was going to have to be, to be successful, a national initiative. Okay, so we're going to hammer it all out here in Washington. We're going to ask all the tough questions. Mm -hmm. And then when we do it, it's going to be because we're all in behind it. All right, so Dr. Steele, i got to ask you one last question, which is, and I know we want you to come back. Come back as often as you want here at CSIS. You're (laughs) very welcome here. Did the Marshall Plan work? Short answer is yes, but with two important caveats, not in the way economists like myself, might have expected it to work. You know, the early eulogistic accounts of the Marshall Plan really just reflexively ascribed a tremendous recovery of Western Europe during the the Marshall years to the Marshall aid itself. Uh, Decades later, economists started running statistical regressions to try to figure out, well, how did it do that? How did it do that? Uh, Is it because it helped them import more? Short answer is yes, but not that much, couldn't explain this enormous boost in output. Did it help them fund increased government spending? No. Government spending as a percentage of GDP actually declined during the Marshall years. So what happened? Well, Kennan, who's the sort of geostrategic architect of the Marshall Plan, was no economist, but he said the the main element of the Marshall Plan is psychological. It's got to be four years. We've got to convince the Europeans we're not going home this time, like after World, World War One, and that the money itself would be important primarily as a social stabilizer so that the Europeans could pursue these difficult structural reforms. And I think that was right. But this second major reason it was success- successful is that we were reversed policy in Germany. Official occupation policy was the so-called Morgenthau Plan 
named after FDR's Treasury Secretary, which was basically to pastoralize, to deindustrialize. It was, cool, cool, cool. It it was, was, it was cool, disastrous. So the Morgenthau Plan was the, is the exact mirror image opposite of the Marshall Plan. Hundred, yes, completely, 180 degrees. Basically, the idea was we're going to deindustrialize Germany so that they never can have enough industrial might to Correct. launch a third world war coming from a militarized Germany. But as notables like Herbert Hoover made clear, without a quickly revived um, industrialized Germany, Western Europe would never recover. So that was critical. And the, the third thing I would emphasize, you and I have talked about this already, is the security element, NATO. Mar the Marshall Plan does not the, work without the it's, security. It's one of the one of the legacy. Dr. Steele, thank you so much. There's so much more we could talk about. I want you have a chapter in here that's a little counterintuitive about maybe not counterintuitive, but is about the NATO expansion and the EU expansion. You're very critical of it, and you argue that it's laid the seeds of the let's call it Cold War 2.0 that we're experiencing today in Russia with Russia. You can directly draw a line from NATO expansion in the 90s to the problems that we have with Russia. I, I argue in the book that the conflict with Russia today, as during the early Cold War, not about ideology, it's about geography. So you have a fabulous map. Mm -hmm. It's their last slide in the, it's page 460, which is an, in, map five is an inverted view of Russia's western border. Mm -hmm. I think it relates to this point, Yeah, right? if you, if, this is a sort of Russian view of the world. I have a, a map with north at the bottom, and this is how the world would looks seem to, to you in Moscow. Yeah, and if you look at Russia, it's always looked to them. Yes, always look. I mean, remember, geography forget, doesn't yeah, change. Forget governments. Yeah. Forget what flavor of government there they you had. Go. This is how they look at the world. Their western border, thousands of miles of plain. It's 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 not. You mean western border meaning like Siberia. Their border border, border, border like with Poland, with Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland. Yes, 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 yes. Th thousands of miles of plains. Plains. There's Flat. there are no bodies of water, mountains, etc. They can put tanks out. They can just go real straight across. Um, Napoleon went through yeah. through the western border. Hitler. Hitler went through the western border right to Moscow. So that's how they see the world. Now, uh, after the supposed end of the Cold War, we had a decision to make about NATO expansion, and there were um, two broad views. Uh, one was George Kennan's. Um, he's still now alive. he's still alive in his nineties. He, he, he's dead now. He's he's dead now. He died in two thousand six, age one hundred one. Unbelievable. Um, Kennan said, "Don't even think of expanding NATO. This would be the biggest American foreign policy disaster uh, in the last hundred years." He said, "This is what we fought the Cold War for. Let us see if we can uh, find an accommodation with a new democratic." Russia in terms of a, a, a joint understanding of what independence and sovereignty would mean in Central and Eastern Europe. The other view that was coherent uh, was the Republican view, which is to say nonsense. Russia we will should, always be we, Russia. We want to, let's bring Poland in. These are the captive nations. Yeah. It's their turn. And we got to protect Czech Republic, them. Republic, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania. These are our friends, the Baltic states. These are all people that suffered for 40 or 50 years under the boot of the bear. Right. It's their turn. But what did we do? We picked a third option. Bill Clinton, being Bill Clinton, uh, chose a third option, which was to expand NATO under the premise that it had no adversary. So we put virtually no resources 
into reinforcing the new eastern so flank. So putting troops on that eastern flank. Not just troops. I mean, we, we, we needed tanks. We needed all sorts of material because the Russians took this deathly seriously. So now I think we put ourselves in a very dangerous position, having underestimated the, the, uh, the geographic fear and the geographic insecurity the Russians a- feel. Absolutely. So we, we should have gone in one of two ways, either the cannon route don't or, go exp- whole hog. or go whole hog, but we chose the third way. Dr. Steele, thank you. Dr. Steele and I were just talking about the Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War, Ben Steele's most recent book. A fabulous read, a total success. Congratulations. Thank you, Dan.